One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. and welcome to Gone Medieval. My name is Dr. Kat Jarman. Alfred the Great, King of the West Saxons from 871, and later King of all the English who were not under Scandinavian rule. He is the only English king ever to have been given the title The Great. But why is that? And what did Alfred do for us? And why has he become such a legend that if you want to become a British citizen and take the required Life in Britain test, you will have to answer questions about him. As a little aside here, um, I actually did one of those online mock exams for this recently, and one of the questions was, who defeated the Vikings? You think that with a PhD in Viking Age English archaeology, that would be quite an easy one? And the answer they wanted, of course, was Alfred. But of course, it's not quite as simple as that. But why has he become so legendary? In today's episode, that's exactly what I'd like to delve a little bit deeper into. And to help me do that, I'm really delighted to have with me historian Justin Pollard. Welcome to Gone Medieval, Justin. Yeah, it's lovely to be here. Now, Justin is the author of several books, including one on today's topic, which has the title, Alfred the Great, The Man Who Made England. And incidentally, Justin is also very well known for his work as a TV producer and not least as a historical consultant for film and drama shows. And in fact, many of our listeners will very likely have watched some of the programmes that he is responsible for the historical background for, including programmes like the drama show Vikings by Michael Hurst. And currently you're working on the new series, aren't you, Justin, of Vikings Valhalla? That's it. Yes. So this is, it's a Viking sequel. So Ragnar and all his friends are dead and we're a couple of hundred years later. So this is the story of Canute and Sven and basically the run up to the Norman conquest, which in our version is going to be really sort of the final Viking conquest, because of course, the Normans are Northmen. Fantastic. I'm going to get back to that a bit at the end, because of course, when you were working on the original series of Vikings, Alfred was one of the characters. And oh, so yes. I'm going to get back to that a little bit. But first of all, just for the sake of our listeners, as a little bit of a kind of recap, I suppose, and those who might not be that familiar with Alfred's life. Can you give me a sort of brief, basic Alfred 101 summary of his sort of main achievements? What he's known for? Surely. So Alfred is king of Wessex originally, living in the middle of the ninth century. So it's a time when all the major Viking raids have started and the old kingdoms of England, the Heptarchy, sort of Mercia, Northumbria, East Anglia, 
are starting to fall under the influence of Vikings and Viking puppet kings. And everyone is basically trying to work out a way of dealing with this scourge that's emerged from the north, which as Christians they think of as very much sort of vengeance from heaven come to damn them. So Alfred is one of a group of brothers who all sort of take it in turns to take the throne and fight repeatedly against the Vikings, sometimes win, sometimes lose, but fundamentally have this problem that Vikings just keep coming back. So Alfred's big job in his reign, and certainly, which we'll come on to, one of the reasons why you might consider him great, is that he finds new ways of dealing with Vikings that don't simply involve having a battle or paying them off. And in doing that, he sets some of the stage for what becomes England and then what becomes Great Britain after that. So it's a long life by the standards of the day. He's about 50 or 51 when he dies. So he does very well compared to his brothers, certainly. And by his death, what was Wessex, which he grew up in, is now become powerful enough to have a lot of the other former kingdoms, if not actually be part of England, certainly hold some sort of allegiance to him. So there's a nascent England there, other than the bit to the east of Watling Street, which of course is Viking. But again, that is one of his achievements in turning the Vikings from raiders into people with problems like his, kings and rulers. So his basic life is an attempt to try and control this completely previously unknown, apparently impossible to deal with threat, a bit like trying to deal with terrorism today. How do you stop a lone person with a gun or a bomb? Vikings to Saxon kings are like that. Everything they try seems to fail, and Alfred finds a way, at least in part, of solving this problem. So that's the basis of it. And he dies in 899, and like all great kings, he's currently buried under a car park. Obviously. Where else would you be at? So, no, that's a brilliant summary. So we're going to get into some of those details a bit later on. But I think one important point to make about Alfred as opposed to other early medieval kings is that we know an awful lot more about him, or at least we think we know an awful lot more about him because so much more is written about him. In fact, I'm researching some of these early Wessex kings at the moment for my next book and I cannot find any information (laughs) about many of them. So there's literally, no, so there's a kind of a sentence here or there. But Alfred is different. What sources do we have for him and for his life? And are they reliable? Ah, well, is is any source reliable? Yes, good. Because one of Alfred's great projects in his life is to increase literacy in the kingdom, which he considers has sort of fallen away, which it has, to be fair, under Viking attack. And so he's probably responsible for really getting things like the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle going, you know, which is this year-by-year account of events happening in his kingdom and other kingdoms in England. It starts off very sparse in the sort of periods you're dealing with, where literally each year has a line written about it. But during his reign, it becomes a lot more elaborate. And this is probably partly propaganda. He is telling his side of the story of how he's bringing together his nation. So we have the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, which is being written pretty much by his reign year by year. So we're going through it. And then we have a biography by a monk from Sherburne, or the Bishop of Sherburne, rather. He's a Welsh monk originally called Asser. And Asser writes a really peculiar biography, part of which is sort of like little vignettes from childhood, part of which is clearly chunks just copied out of the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, and quite important bits like the year in which he's deposed from power and goes and hides in Athelney and supposedly burns the cakes. He leaves that bit out altogether. 
And that's led to a great spat amongst historians as to whether or not this book's a fake. Certainly Alfred P. Smith, who's a famous Saxonist, claims it is a forgery, written later to sort of justify the past. Most other people, including me, think it is probably original, but it isn't a complete biography. It looks to me like it's, well, like you're doing when you're preparing your next book. These are materials being put together to write a biography. So it's not surprising that the year in which he gets deposed is missing from it, because you're not going to put that in. But I think it's almost impossible to prove. But it looks to me like what's happened. He gathers these materials for a propagandistic biography of his master, his uh, patron. And by the time it's becoming ready, the need has gone. The Viking problem has, to some degree, been solved. So these things are just put aside, because it is a weird mishmash of things. But the information in it feels very of its time. The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle no t- uh, parts from it. And certainly, if you talk to people like Simon Keynes at Cambridge, they are very convinced all the time. A lot of this is, of course, to do with linguistics, and I'm not a linguist. And a lot of the arguments in its favour are linguistic. But we also have a problem with Asso in that it doesn't survive, because, of course, it was in Cotton Library. And in 1731, the British government, in their usual careful and considered way, let their greatest treasure go up in flames. And Asser's book was completely destroyed on the Otho bookcase. So fortunately, Bishop Parker had made a copy of it. So we have a copy, but he did add in bits to it in the way that people in the 16th century did. So we don't have a clean copy. And that may also be one of the reasons why some people think it's not genuine, because it has been messed around quite a lot. But I think it's certainly a genuine document. It's unique in that it lets you see a Saxon king up face to face, which nobody else does. You know, when's the next biography of an English king written in their lifetime? Trying to think, long time after. And beyond that, of course, also we have some ways of proving the events that are talked about by Assa and the Saxon Chronicle in that they're European chronicles. So you've got the Annals of Fulda and the Annals of Saint-Bertin, you've got the Vatican authors... And we also, we have letters, we have the laws of Alfred, we have various legal documents, charters. Most of all, we have some books partly written by Alfred himself, which again, I don't think any English king could read properly until what, Henry VIII after him. But we do have yeah. a series of books he wanted translated into English. And obviously, they're just translations and may partly have been done by other people. But he wrote prefaces in them. And there you can hear an English Saxon king's own thoughts And again, that is absolutely unique. So it's a completely different set of materials to any king either side, really. Yeah, I mean, it is really absolutely remarkable. And I think only when you compare them to everybody else, you realise the extent of that. But I think it also does mean, as you've already pointed out quite clearly, there's some motivation, there's a lot of propaganda here. And he is obviously trying to do a lot. He's trying to sort of gather and and put himself as this sort of legitimate person who's going to gather the whole country, which obviously has an effect on how we've seen him later on as well so exactly it's sort of all of that tied together is giving him this legend and what about this this title of of, uh, the great when does that come in is that during his lifetime or is it later no it's much later if you look at his death notice as it were in the anglo-saxon chronicle it basically just said alfred's dead it's really very very downbeat (laughs) you know he doesn't get any great encomium (laughs) at all but through later writers through medieval writers in particular, so Simeon of Durham and William of Malmesbury, they sort of developed with for him a reputation of being Alfred the Wise. 
and to them. And so we start getting all sorts of quotes attributed to him, which are completely made up. But, you know, <laughs> he did make some really fantastic quotes, but he becomes this epitome of wisdom, partly because he was literate and partly because these later writers, as we do to some degree, we fall for the propaganda. He was writing in a difficult time trying to establish, first of all, his legitimacy on the throne of Wessex, and then his legitimacy in a wider area of England, and tell a narrative that explained how and why he was going to defeat the Vikings and how and why that was a good thing, really. Because several kingdoms had taken the Vikings in and had vassal kings and weren't necessarily all that unhappy about it. So we we tend to fall for it. And then we get Henry VIII, of course, who tries to get everyone to call him Great Harry, and nobody does. <laughs> which is... <laughs> It's really in the 18th and 19th century that he starts to be called Alfred the Great, as sort of basically our version of all those other greats. So, you know, there's Darius the Great and Charlemagne. And and as the English uh, or the British Empire begins to expand and we begin to feel more confident on the world stage, we sort of need a great. And so songs like Rule Britannia first appears in Thomas Arne's Alfred, a Mask, because at this period, we also start to get this myth that Alfred founded the Royal Navy. You know, he was a clever man. He did realise and was one of the first to realise that the boundaries of the nation were not now the rivers and field boundaries between the old heptarchy, but were the seas around us. And the seas were what Vikings used. They were roads to Vikings, whereas they were barriers to Saxons. So he does form a navy of sorts. But it's really not very effective. It keeps bumping into the south coast of England, which isn't terribly helpful. And where we have accounts of how it worked, they tend to get, they were very heavy ships, they'd get uh, uh, stranded, and then the Vikings would just run away because they couldn't get away. So it's an 18th, 19th century sense that he becomes, Britain needs a founding father. So he starts getting associated with being the founder of everything. And he becomes great. He's Victorian great rather than Saxon great. To his medieval wise, he's Alfred to the Saxons, he's wise to the medieval period, and he's great in the post-medieval period. So it's partly the propaganda of his own, and it's partly the propaganda of the nascent British Empire that makes him into this ludicrously overblown character, really. Yeah, absolutely. And then we get to the 21st century, and we don't quite know what to do with him, but we still call him, put him in the syllabus and, and make him great. And It's a bit more complicated. Well, we yes, well, we still call him great. And again, partly this is retro, because we currently have this rather sort of, certainly in government circles, this retro feel about how 18th and 19th century history has been done down and we should still be proud of elements of it, which I suppose is a natural pushback against post-colonial studies and having to start dealing with the downsides of having an empire, which are substantial, to say the least. So there has been pushback, which again is really just propaganda. I think Alfred should absolutely be studied, but not because of a title the great that's he would have been absolutely embarrassed i would <laughs> yes. think about being called that really he's quite his writing shown to be a modest man yeah a quiet man and a man who talks specifically about the dangers of hubris so it's a difficult balance because of the victorians he has become indelibly associated with that sort of tub thumping empire building jingoism yeah and so the response then after certainly in the 70s 80s was ignore him he's not important Neither of those are true. They're both in themselves propagandistic approaches to it. The real Alfred lies in the middle. And if people actually looked at him, they'd get a much better idea, not only about the ninth century, but actually about, frankly, modern politics. They could all learn from reading some Alfred.
Absolutely, that's very well said. And actually, a great way to get back to the actual Alfred and his actual achievements. So let's go oh, yes. back to him and his life. We could talk about the latest stuff, you know, for hours. But let's go back to to Alfred. Then, so he is in the kingdom of Wessex in the ninth century. And what do we know about his sort of family background? You already mentioned he's got several brothers. What sort of do we know about his family? We know a little from Asa because, again, with this unique biography, you get some personal details you just don't get for other Saxon kings. His predecessor was his brother Ethelred, and he's descended from Ecbert. There were a line of brothers that take on the throne one after the other. We know that his mother was a woman called Osba, and we have one little vignette from his childhood, which Asa writes, which says that uh, his mother tells her children that the first person who can recite this beautiful book she has, she'll give the book to. And of course, Alfred, who at the time actually is younger than we know he'd learned to read, somehow probably last time must have read it to him. He puts this book to memory and this little boy of all the children then is the one who recites this book perfectly. And Osbo is seen giving him this sort of beautiful little book. But after which, like so many Saxon women, she disappears off the page. We know he married Aylesworth, and it looks like all his children were had with Aylesworth. And he's, you know, unusually for the period, his eldest, Edward the Elder, went on to be king after him. His eldest daughter went on to be the Lady of the Mercians, Mercia being the other big former kingdom just to the north. It's interesting because it's a time when succession to the throne in Wessex or in any of the Saxon states is not a done deal. It's not a case that the eldest son of the eldest son of the eldest son. There are certain families who vie for control. And at the end of the day, when a king dies, it is up to the government, the Witten, to vote for the next king. So you see, particularly in Mercia around this period, there are various dynasts, the C dynasty, the B dynasty, the W dynasty, and they're endlessly fighting with each other to try and take control and gain legitimacy through being voted in by their Witten. So again, this is one of the reasons why Alfred has to write this very positive propaganda about himself. He's trying to turn this very unstable system that the Vikings use and abuse by siding with underdogs and turn it into what becomes a hereditary monarchy. So he's trying to turn a family who are basically senior nobles, who have a chance at the top job, into a family who are royal and as such, by definition, get the top job. So that's the main hereditary attempt he's making in his reign to change what had, you know, which is very unusual sort of in our world, in a, an elected monarchy. Might be a good idea. Who knows? Aeroplanes, spacesuits, condoms, coffee, plastic surgery, warships. Over on the patented podcast by History Hit, we bring you the fascinating stories of history's most impactful inventions and the people who claim these ideas as their own. We uncover exceptional stories behind everyday objects. We managed to put two men on the moon before we put wheels on suitcases. Unpack invention myths. So the prince's widow immediately becomes certain. Thomas Edison stole her husband's invention and her husband disappeared around the same time, can only have been eliminated by Thomas Edison, who at the time is arguably the most famous person in the West. And look backwards to understand technologies that are still in progress. You know, when people turn around to me and say, oh, why would you want to live forever? Life's rubbish. I just think that's a bit sad. I think it's a worthwhile thing to do. And the thing that really makes it worthwhile is the fact that you could make it go on forever. So subscribe to Patented from History Hit 
on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts to catch new episodes every Wednesday and Sunday. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Afwa Hirsch. I'm Peter Frankopan. And in our podcast, Legacy, we explore the lives of some of the biggest characters in history. This season, we're exploring the life of Cleopatra. An iconic life full of romances, sieges and tragedy. But who was the real Cleopatra? It feels like her story's been told by others with their own agenda for centuries. But her legacy is enduring, and so we're going to dive into how her story has evolved all the way up to today. I am so excited to talk about Cleopatra, Peter. Love Cleopatra. She is an icon. She's the most famous woman in antiquity. It's got to be up there with the most famous woman of all time. But I think there's a huge gap between how familiar people are with the idea of her compared to what they actually know about her life and character. So for Pyramids, Cleopatra and Cleopatra's Nose. Follow Legacy Now wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can binge entire seasons early and ad-free on Wondery+. Plus. Interesting one, isn't it? So, of course, we've talked a little bit about this earlier, but so he battles the, the Vikings are his absolute main enemy, really. And especially the Great Army. We've had episodes on the Great Army before on the podcast here. But it's really in that particular time period from the 860s and on to the 870s that these really become the major threat to the entire country, really. And we have kingdoms falling one by one, and they do eventually also head for Wessex and try to get to Wessex. But Alfred does successfully keep them out. Can you say a little bit more about exactly what he does that is so successful and that sort of sets him apart, really? It's interesting because what has been happening was there have been these early Viking raids, which were purely sort of piratical raids, but they build up and up into larger and larger armies and armies which later on they bring their family over. Clearly, they're not, you know, they're not just visiting. And the problem with traditionally how kings have dealt with this was you either fight them and beat them and they run away and then next year they come back or you fight them and lose at which point you have to pay them off. So you give them vast amounts of silver or gold, particularly in France. Charles the Bald is giving away tons of the stuff to get them to go away. And then they go away and they go and do the same thing in France and France or Francia. Francia then pays them off and they come back. You don't ever solve the problem. So that was the big problem that Alfred had to deal with. And Mercia had fallen recently, again, by a coup. The Vikings had supported one of the dynasts and taken over. And we hear that at one Christmas, Alfred is in Chippenham and he's attacked by Vikings and deposed. And this is where he runs away to Athelney and supposedly burns the cakes. And normally that's told just as a story of the Vikings come and take over. I think 
it reads so much like the Mercian story. I think probably there is a court coup as well. And if you look at who's signing charters before and after this, once Alfie gets back into power, a lot of those names who were there before have disappeared. So to some degree, either it's just a straight Viking invasion or there's an associated coup. But Alfred is thrown into exile. He burns the cakes, according to the Annals of St. Neot. But he does manage to form together three thirds, three levied armies, and fights the Battle of Eddington against Guthrum and his forces and wins. Now, at that point, it can all just go wrong again. Winning a battle doesn't necessarily help you at all. They'll go away, but they'll be back. But he does a number of brilliant things, really. First of all, he gets Guthrum to be baptised, and then he tells Guthrum he can have a kingdom to the east of Watling Street. So he turns Guthrum from being a warlord, a pirate king, into a king. And in doing that, of course, he gives Guthrum all the problems that he has as well. Because now <laughs> Guthrum has to worry about Vikings and attacks and raids and looking after his people and staying popular and doing all of these things. So he quite brilliantly gives Guthrum what he thinks he really wants, but actually it is a nightmare for a Viking, really. And that buys him time. And it's the time then that makes the real difference. He does three things, really. He reorganises his administration, both the military administration and the civil administration, and puts them on a shift system, whereby you can have some people defending you and other people, because they're peasant levies working the fields. What used to happen was you gather as many people you as together and have a battle, and depending on what happens, there's nobody tending the fields, it's an economic disaster. So he puts his admin and taxation, his tax collectors, all onto a shift system, so some people do it and some people don't. He then builds these burrs, which are small fortified settlements. They're not forts. He's not building castles. There are 33 of them. They're built to similar plans, and they have a high street in them. Winchester is one. It's still laid out, actually, in the same units that it was laid out by Alfred. And within those, you put people, traders, and you defend it. And because you give them land and you put them in this network of trading centres with good roads between them, they prosper. And as they prosper, they have something to defend. They have a sense of ownership, a sense of belonging to their nation. So they help to provide for the defence of each burr. Also, when Vikings do attack, Vikings used to like to attack their headquarters and decapitate the state. When you've got 33 burrs, you can move your power around that. If somewhere's attacked, you can move somewhere else. If somewhere's attacked, other burrs can come to your aid. So it's a bit like the origins of the internet by the American military. Rather than have a centre and an outlier, you have a network system which can adapt around whatever the attack is. And this is brilliant because not only is it very militarily effective, but it gives people a sense of ownership of their land and a reason to be English or Wessex and defend it for themselves. So he does that. And then thirdly, literacy. He's very big on literacy because he thinks quite rightly that it's been destroyed during the Viking years. But... He's not just talking about, let's get monks reading Latin again. He wants things put into English so that anyone should be able to read them. And so he starts himself and through his court translating books into English. He rewrites the laws of the country, puts those into English. They're odd laws. They're more of a sort of a manual of kingship rather than literally laws for a judge to use. And this is an extraordinary thing. Most people you know, in the medieval period, they use Latin as an exclusive language. You don't want the peasantry to know it. You don't even want the lower barons to know it. And yet he wants things in English so everyone may know it. And in doing that, he massively increases the educational base. He sets up a school at court so his own 
barons, his own earls, are educated. And, and that not only improves the general standard of education, he brings in people from Europe as well. It also, of course, improves the sophistication of his court and allows it to function at a much higher level, which makes it more stable. And so it, those are the three real foundation stones, the administration of the country, the burgle system, and the literacy. And that is what he does different. You don't get really anywhere else in the world many rulers choosing to do those. They tend to fight and feast. Yes, absolutely. No, those are such good points. So really, some of these impacts were very much on culture and society, weren't they? You know, rather than necessarily military and country, but it's actually also on quite a small and local scale. Well, exactly. Well, he even, you know, he starts, he dies before he finishes it, but he starts translating the Psalms into English. Quite yeah. what the Catholic Church thought at the time of having their holy texts being read out so that everyone in church could understand them. Who knows? Of course, in the later medieval period, everything is back in Latin again and doesn't come out until the Reformation do we actually get yeah. to hear it. He's way ahead of his time there. And there's a great increase in art at the time. We have the Alfred Jewel, which is yes. maybe a bookmarker from one of the books he sent out, possibly, I don't know if you think it's from Miserosius or whatever. I actually have one which was made for the uh, Victorian anniversary of his death, of course. So uh, Fantastic. I'm very envious. <laughs> so it is really, it's almost a sort of a Carolingian renaissance, really. He goes from what was really just a mayhem of small states trying to fight off a, basically to them a terrorist enemy who don't play by the rules to actually slowing down and holding together everything enough to plant the seed of a real country. Yeah. And you've mentioned a couple of times the sort of continental links. And actually, there is quite a strong link, isn't there, between Wessex and between Alfred and continental Europe, the Carolingians, you know, all these other people. Is he getting his inspiration from abroad or is it sort of all his own making? No, he is. Again, as you know, it's often sort of popularly thought that in this period, everywhere is very insular. It's very difficult to travel. Alfred goes to Rome when he's very little. He goes there with his dad. And he meets the Pope. The way Asser tells it, he's then anointed king. Because again, Asser's trying to say that it's a done deal. In fact, the Pope makes him consul, which is a fairly empty title. And of course, but in doing that, he has to travel. So he has to go to San Botan and then follow the pilgrimage route all the way down. And on the way back, they stop off at the Carolingian court. Ethelred meets Judith, Carolingian princess, who he brings back with him. So he sees the sophistication of the Carolingian court, he would have, I'm sure, heard that they had started building fortified settlements on either sides of rivers to control Viking movement up and down rivers. And we find some of the burrs built in England are double burrs on either side of the river. So you have London Burr and the Southwark, Southwark, which are on either side of the river, because they're starting to realise, and this I think is probably a Carolingian realisation, that where to the Christians, rivers are boundaries, to the Vikings, their roads. That's how they get in and out quickly. And so by throttling off those roads, by effectively putting tolls on those roads, they begin to control the threat. So Alfred, his court are in correspondence with monks in Europe and with the Carolingian court. He has contact with the papacy. Again, something very hard for his predecessors to have done when you're fighting for your life all the time and really jumping from battle to battle. But he puts down an anchor for a nation, you know, he manages to just hold everything together, slow everything down long enough to start building up this big world, to start having international relations, and as such to start learning from those, and for the first time really learning that the Carolingians, the Franks, were having exactly the same problems with Vikings that was happening in England, 
and that by getting together and working together, it was going to be a damn sight easier to deal with them than just always making them the other person's problem. Yes, absolutely. And it clearly works very well for him, which is great. Now, just one sort of interesting thing about Alfred Lives is he was actually not a very well person, was he? He was very sickly. He was making, you know, all these great achievements, but he was really quite unwell. What do we know about his illness or his alleged illness anyway? His, well, it is, again, it's mentioned in Asa. As you're trying to diagnose people over a thousand years later is always difficult but he had these agonising stomach cramps. I think it's often been said it may possibly be Crohn's disease, something like that. It may, in the original case, may have been a case of poisoning, but it certainly seems to be some sort of gastric problem he has that bedevils him all his life, and to some degree he considers it a penance, that it is something he's been sent by God to live with and put up with, and so... And clearly it's not deadly in that he lives to be a good age of 50, which, bearing in mind the life he'd had, is not a bad knock, really. But certainly he was bedeviled all his life for this. In fact, when we, Michael and I, were first thinking of doing a series, Vikings, Michael had read my book and he wanted to do a movie called The Agony about Alfred's sort of struggle, his internal struggle and how that affected his outside. And we couldn't get it off the ground. And eventually he rang me up and said, well, why don't we do it the other way around and we'll call it Vikings? So we did that because everyone had heard of Vikings. <laughs> Outside of the UK, not everyone thought Alfred was great. So, <laughs> <laughs> Understandably. So his illness actually was sort of the first seed of actually getting around to telling his story the other way around. So that sort of leads us quite nicely into how he's been represented. And so, of course, he is in that series and he is, is sort of unwell. So and I wanted to ask you as a sort of historical consultant, obviously, you're not responsible for accuracy or anything like that as such, you're sort of providing the background and the information. But you know, how do you feel about sort of presenting a character like Alfred on screen? What sort of considerations would you put into that when you talk to someone like Michael or somebody else? You know, how much do you sort of feel like you sort of have to try and get to of that real character, if that makes sense? Whenever you're doing drama, you're aiming for authenticity rather than accuracy because we don't have the information we don't have the data we don't have the time and we don't have the money frankly to do everything and say everything so it's always an impression and it's always all historical drama is the impression of the writer so there's as much of the writer as there is about in the same way when I wrote a biography of Alfred the Great there have been biographies since I wrote mine and before mine why is that with the same material, basically? It's because half of it is about when you write it as opposed to when it's set. It's the mirror through which you're seeing this past. So with Alfred, well, with all characters in Vikings, I mean, I would work with Michael Richie on a sort of a storyline of where we wanted to go and we'd fill in all the background details of what we know actually happened to Alfred. So I had a commonplace book, a bit like uh, Alfred did. I wrote in it each year of his life and then I wrote out every source we had that mentioned Alfred from each year. So we had all the primary sources that I could find, which took a couple of years to put together for this. So you start very accurately with as much, and Michael always liked to go back to primary sources, if possible. And you see, that's one of the reasons why we often have in the series people talking in Old Norse or Anglo-Saxon or Frankish or all sorts of languages. I think we've used about 17 languages now in the series. Also, partly because in those original sources, there's more drama in them than there are often in the later more sort of cut back, dried sources. So we use the original sources in where we have them. Then you have to write that up as a show and then things have to start to change. The main problem is time. 
obviously you've got a character who ages 30 years during a series. You've only got one person playing that actor. So you have to try and compress time into much smaller amounts, which is simply, we know it's not the case that it happened in five years. We know it happened in 30, but this actor is 25 and that's that. And this series goes out over 10 weeks. So that's a known difference from what you would do. And then obviously Michael writes in the very personal storyline, the love stories, the hate stories, which come as much from him as they do from the character. They're inspired by what we know of the characters, but they are, of course, his human experience of love and loss and fear and anger, and that belongs to the author, and that always belongs to the author, and you should never go through someone's script saying, you can't say that, that's wrong, you can't do that. That's for them, that's their interpretation. And then once you've done all of that, then you come onto the background which we try to be as authentic as possible in. And art departments these days are brilliant at it. And that's where it comes to building the villages, the towns, the ships, the clothing, the jewellery, and all the things that are going on in the background. So it's not just a dead world of everyone sitting around in outfits. So there are people weaving, there are smelters smelting, there are people buying and selling, there are funerals, there are births. And that's where we rely much more on archaeology, obviously, than the history. And that is to get the authentic look of it that really helps to sort of suspend disbelief for the audience and that's an area where you try not to make mistakes because you can in as much as we have the archaeology you can say what it looked like and what's going on and and we do our very best there so the overall story arc we try to make authentic the look we try to make authentic the emotional travel in the middle belongs to the writer that's basically how we do it yeah. And it's, it's quite important to know that, I think, for the viewers as well. That's sort of how it happens. But think about Alfin. So we, I think you made a really good case earlier on for him being created, that this legend, mainly back in Victorian times. So modern, sort of the most recent film and media representations, they probably haven't done that much to sort of change his reputation in any way, have they? It's, it's more further back, would you say? Yes, I would think so. Obviously, in Vikings, I tried not to change his reputation too much because I, I have yeah. genuine admiration for the man. I think that in all of these, certainly screen reimaginings of historical characters now, we're trying to see a more real and a more personal character, which we tried to do with Alfred in Viking. I did a film years ago with Michael called Elizabeth, with Kate Blanchett. And the idea there was showing someone who is actually young and female and vulnerable and not this magnificent as we see her now, this sort of infallible queen, but to see her as a young woman. And also to see courts, not as we, we tend to imagine everything in the past, certainly in courts, is hugely glamorous and gilded and wonderful and there are thousands of people and everything. And of course, medieval and even Renaissance courts in part look pretty grubby, really. I was very inspired by a film called La Reine Margot, which is about the St Bartholomew's Day Massacre, where you have the French court, but you know, they've got grubby collars and there's filth everywhere. You know, they're doing well compared to most people in their country, but it is not that imagination we had when we made things like Elizabeth R and all of those 60s Hollywood movies where everything is vast and grand and gilded and clean and perfect, and these people are magnificent. I think we've moved very much away from that simply because partly as a way of saving them, because if you set up these sort of ludicrous icons... The danger is that some degree happened to Alfred. They get knocked down to nothing at all. And that isn't a fair historical estimation of them. They were never gilded, but nor were they irrelevant. And Alfred, picking, I hope we've done him. Uh, yes, I hope if he's up there, we've done him justice <laughs> in this. But it was to make him real and fallible. 
but still a man of ideas and integrity. Absolutely. And I think that's the sort of takeaway message, really, very much on Alfred. And I think things that you pointed out very clearly, his uh, impact on society and culture and the country in that sense is probably why he, he does still deserve the name great, doesn't he? Well, I think so. Many of those towns, those burrs he set up, are still there today. So even just at the economic level, you can see his genuine influence. Those networks of towns still largely exist. We now take it for granted that everyone should be able to understand what's going on in their own language. That was Alfred's idea. We've only recently got round to actually doing that, really. <laughs> and the administration, obviously we've come a long way to administration, but he sets up that idea, it is your duty to properly administer a nation and set out clear laws that people can understand and have judges who can read them so they're responsible for their judgments. It's just, it's largely about honesty. There's one, there's a brilliant quote in his introduction to Pope Gregory's pastoral care, which, which frankly, any politician, certainly of today, should listen to. And he says, in prosperity, a man often destroys the good he has done. Amidst difficulties, he often repairs what he long since did in the way of wickedness. And I think if any politician today took that to heart, they'd frankly do a lot better. And this comes from personal experience. He had hubris. <laughs> He thought he was great and he ended up living on a tiny marshy island in the Somerset Levels and had to fight his way back. You should listen to people in hardship. In prosperity, they're an absolute nightmare. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, I think that's a great way to end this, actually. And let's hope that some of our current politicians take some of his advice as well. Absolutely. So, Justin, thank you so much. That's been an absolutely excellent tour through the life and legacy of Alfred the Great. Absolute pleasure. So do check out Justin's book, Justin Pollard's Alfred the Great, The Man Who Made England. And it's got some of these brilliant stories that we haven't quite time to go into here and is a really good read. And also, I mentioned briefly earlier on that we've had a few other episodes on topics that we talked about today. There's some on the Great Army. We also have another episode with Dr. Katie Tucker about what happened to Alfred's bones. So if you want to know if we still think he is under a car park or if he's somewhere else, do look at our back catalogue and find that episode there. We also have an episode on Judith, who married Alfred's dad, Ethelwolf. And finally, we have an episode and an accompanying film on History Hit where Dan Snow and I went in search of the Great Army all the way around the country and ending up at Eddington searching for that infamous battle between Alfred and Guthrum. So check that out both on the podcast and also on History Hit TV. That brings us to the end of today's episode. Do remember to leave us a review if you enjoyed the show and subscribe as well. My name is Dr Kat Jarman. I'll be back again next Tuesday and don't miss my co-host Matt Lewis's episode coming up on Saturday. Thank you all for listening.
The secret to visibly firmer, summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dull, dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Rich yet never greasy, Andaria Algae Body Oil is formulated with sustainably sourced seaweed to help replenish the skin's moisture barrier and seven nourishing active botanical oils for results you can see and feel all over. The best part? It's signature scent. A blend of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. This all-natural scent is unforgettable. Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu com code GLOW. Thank you for listening to this episode of Gone Medieval. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us out and you'll be doing me a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com forward slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just one pound a month when you use the code MEDIEVAL at checkout.